Thank you for that music this morning. That was a blessing to me. I hope to the rest of you as well. I'm sure it was. Romans chapter 1, and we are in the tail end of our Advent series now. We'll finish up next week answering the question, who is Jesus? And you'll remember as a springboard to this message and somewhat of an outline, we're using this introduction of Paul's to the church in Rome, especially the first five or six verses that I'll read for us now. Let's do that. Let's read these first, and then we'll pray, and we'll ask God's blessing on our time. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We'll end our reading there. Let's ask God's blessing on the word preached. Father, we need... Now, illumination from you, our hearts uh, opened to receive your word, our minds tuned, enlightened to understand. And so I pray that you would help each one of us with that. And we also need me to be gifted to teach and exhort Uh, to do so with clarity and in a demonstration of not just speech, but of power that comes from the Holy Spirit. And we ask for that because it's important, and your Word is the most important thing we possess, and we want to understand it rightly and respond to it appropriately. So we ask for this in the name of Jesus Amen. I don't know if you've ever had the unfortunate experience of watching a friend or a loved one destroy their life. By that I mean just begin perhaps as a youth making terrible decisions that continued and got worse and worse until their life was In many ways, at least in the present time as you're looking at them, ruined. Perhaps you've had that experience in your own life. And making bad decisions over and over again until your life was a wreck and in shambles. We're having the unfortunate experience of watching our nation do this. As a matter of fact, as collectively... The United States has, throughout its pretty brief history, I mean, historically speaking, compared to other nations and 
such as keeps making bad decisions that are corrupting it and ruin it, uh, ruining it in many ways and bringing it to what will probably be the brink of destruction, at least for what we know to be uh, the historical country. If you read the Old Testament of your Bible, you know that Israel was this way. That what you see cosmically happening, globally happening among nations and individuals is nothing new. Israel, which in your Bible serves as a microcosm of all nations and all peoples, to show what all nations and all peoples do, they make series of bad decisions that led to their demise in any, every way and is one of the reasons they're in such a mess as they are now. You know, you read through the book of Judges as an example. And Judges is just really a strange book, isn't it? It's got some very strange accounts and stories in it. Some of you, a couple years ago, studied through this in the Thursday Bible study, and I kept hearing comments as, we know it's God's Word, and we treasure it as God's Word, but it's very hard to study through. It's just a series of bad things that happen. You have people getting chopped up and FedExed throughout the whole country. You've got all sorts of different weird things happening. What do you make of it? But it's one of those books, interesting, that you have to read the very last verse of the book to understand what the author was doing in the whole book. The very last verse in the book of Judges is Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A king is one who has absolute authority. And Israel was functioning as though they had no king, when in reality they did have a king. God was their king, He was their absolute authority. He was the foundation of their laws and their life. He was the source of what was to be their moral compass, their sense of what is right and what is wrong and how to worship and how to treat one another. But they did not function as though God was their king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and therefore disaster and chaos ensued. And that's what happens in everyone's life when there's no moral, absolute authority. We just all do what we want to do. We all do what we feel is right, what we think we should do, or what we just want to do. And what we see in the scriptures and what we see in the world around us is when that happens, whether it's in the life of an individual or when it's in the life of a nation, disaster ensues. There must be a king. We need a king who governs and rules over us in righteousness and in truth and in justice. A king who shows us the way A king who teaches us how we are to live. A king to whom we submit. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that our country needs an earthly king, that we should be some kind of kingdom. 
Our founding forefathers knew that was a disaster because no human being in this world now can be entrusted with absolute authority. That's why they established the form of government they did. A government, a, a system of checks and balances, no one with one absolute position of authority. As a matter of fact, when they were trying to ni- figure out what to call the first president, George Washington, what, the, what his title was going to be in this executive office, they debated over it. And they would put forth names and say, that's too much like a king. He's not going to be a king, you see. But we do need God as our king. And more specifically, we need Christ as our king. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God, and Jesus is the king we need, and Jesus is Lord. Let's focus on that this morning. Jesus is king. Look down at Romans 1, once again, verse 2. At the end of verse 1, Paul had been set apart for the gospel of God. So we're talking about the gospel now, right? And this is the gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's your Old Testament. And this is the gospel promised that's concerning his son or about his son. And notice this phrase, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, we looked at that phrase last week, and we zeroed in on the aspect that the eternal Son of God became a man. We just, we just zeroed in on the aspect of the incarnation, that He was descended from David. In, in other words, He became a human being. But This week, we need to see even more of what Paul is drawing our attention to In that phrase that he was descended, not generally as he talked about in Galatians 4, born of a woman that we looked at last week, but that he was descended from this man David, this historical figure, both in the Bible and in world history. David, of course, was the king of the Jews, the second king after Saul. God had given in 1 Samuel A king, Saul, he was anointed as king. Remember the story, Saul rebels against God and didn't have a heart after God. And so God removes him and has Samuel anoint this young man, David. And God said, this man, David, is going to be king. He is a man, says God now, after my own heart. It's a key phrase when we're thinking about David. Then he eventually ascends to the throne over Israel, establishes Jerusalem as the capital city of that nation and ruled there from Jerusalem over those people. And he did so in large part in righteousness and justice. He maintained faithfulness to the Lord, though he was clearly a great sinner, and we know the accounts of his failures into sin. But the reason that Paul says that Jesus was descended from David, and the reason he's making that very clear is because he's proving the same point that Matthew in his genealogy is, was proclaiming that we read earlier, is that Jesus as the uh, 
the son or descendant of David is the king they were looking for. That the king they were looking for has arrived. And their expectation of a king who was coming, who would be born from the line of David, who would be in the descendancy of David, their expectation comes from what we call the Davidic covenant. The Bible has a number of covenants throughout it uh, that help. It's one of the trails through which you can trace all of biblical history and world history as God unfolds things in using these covenants. And the Davidic covenant is very important. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I put these on here. If you want to turn to them, you can. I'm reading selected portions because our time is limited. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes this covenant of promise with David. And he says this in verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You know, as you read on after David, of course, he has Solomon. There's a beginning of fulfillment in Solomon and some partial fulfillment of this, of course, as Solomon is the son of David and he builds the temple and he's this wise and, and, and glorious king in his own right. But we know that at the end of his life, what does Solomon do? He, he is led astray by all of his wives who, were, who didn't worship God to begin worshiping other gods and he failed and he sinned and because of him the nation of Israel was torn apart after that and you read through all of the rest of uh, kings and through chronicles and you see the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah merge and none of them fit this description. All of them failed in their own ways and more importantly all of them died and stayed dead. None of them fulfilled this purpose. So the people of God, knowing this, were waiting for this king to arrive. When is God going to send forth this king? Throughout their prophets, they had much reading about the promised king to come. So, one of our favorite Christmas time verses is Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, which talk about this promised king, right? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This whole time they're waiting. When will this happen? Where is this Davidic king? Where is his promised kingdom? Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And what will he do? He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Where is this king? 
this forever king over God's forever kingdom that was going to come from uh, Abraham and then from David himself. Ezekiel 37 verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. The prophets even spoke, the Lord spoke through the prophets of this Davidic king, even in terms of this, David will be this king over them. That's how closely affiliated this king would be to the righteous or to uh, King David. This is a promised king throughout all the prophets, just like Paul said, the gospel of God, which he promised concerning his son who was descended from David. This was the promise of the prophets that God delivered through them. It was a man who would be descended from David who will be king and his kingdom will be forever and it'll be a kingdom of righteousness. They knew this. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the, Lord shall, uh, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. See, what everybody understood and what we need to understand is we need a king, but he's got to be a righteous one. Completely and totally righteous. And when this king come, this promised king come, he would, ha- he would establish a kingdom of righteousness and justice. He could be trusted. Imagine that in our political day, a leader, a ruler who can be trusted, a man who could be entrusted with absolute authority because he's righteous through and through. Every one of his decisions and decrees and laws would be righteous and just. This was the promise of the king. And he would come to the people of Israel. He would be known as the king of Israel. But the prophets also promised a king, yes, that would be a king over Israel. Yes, that would come from David's line. But this king would not just rule over Israel. He would rule in righteousness over all the nations. His kingdom would be both eternal and universal. As a matter of fact, in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5, Then the Lord will, my God will come, and all the holy holy ones with Him. By the way, that speaks of the deity of this Lord, doesn't it? Or this King. The Lord, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with Him. And the Lord will be King over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one in His Name one. Daniel chapter 9, verses 13 to 14, which became a messianic text for the Jewish people concerning this one prophesied about called the Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite expression for Himself. And it said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. Now listen. To Him was given dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages serve Him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When this king comes, His kingdom would be over all peoples for all times, and it would be a reign of righteousness and justice because He is righteous. And when He comes and establishes His universal reign, the prophets describe that the time of this reign would be peace and prosperity. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, He shall judge between the nations, and they shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In other words, throughout all the nations of the world, imagine this now, perfect peace. Armed forces and the personnel of them become farmers because they're not needed in the reign of this king. It's a righteous reign. It is a peaceful reign. It is an eternal reign. It is a universal reign. You see, friends, even in our own nation, how that is what many people are longing for. They just think that it's going to come about in some other means. We can educate our way into this. Or we can social social program our way into this. Or we can achieve this with our peace talks in the nations, you see. But there's only one who is going to be able in and of himself by His own power to establish this kind of kingdom, and it's the promised kingdom, the kingdom the prophets, God through His prophets promised. It's a kingdom of righteousness and peace. It's also described as a time of healing physically. As a matter of fact, Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Do you remember when John the Baptist was put into prison by Herod? And he was confused, I think, at this point, or maybe doubting, because he had been proclaiming this coming king, and here he was. He's arrived, and now John's in prison. And so he sent word to Jesus by his own disciples to say, Are you the one promised, or should we expect another? This is not happening at all like we had anticipated. And Jesus sent back the messengers and He said, you tell them this, and He quoted from that very passage. You go tell them what you see. The blind eyes are being opened. The deaf are beginning to hear. The lame are walking, you see. I'm that promised king. These miracles that I'm doing now, these healings that I'm performing, they're demonstrating that I'm the king, and they're like a foretaste of the kingdom that I'll one day usher in, you see. I've read and believe it's probably true that during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, Israel was almost free of diseases and infirmities. 
So many thousands being brought to them, and he was healing them all, that everybody was walking around as healed people to just give a preview of what's to come, just a little small picture of the kingdom yet to be inaugurated. Well, that was the kingdom promised. And it's why, friends, when you read in the Christmas story and the Christmas narratives, the Jewish people of Jesus' day that you read about in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John were so anticipating this time. It's true they were in their nation, but they didn't have a righteous king. Herod was not a righteous king. They didn't have peace not for themselves or for the world. They knew there was one coming who was going to deliver them, restore that kingdom, rule over all the nations, and they were eagerly excited for that time. Now, let me say this. Many of those prophecies, most, as a matter of fact, that I said to you about Jesus, have not found their full fulfillment even to this day, which means for us, that they're going to be. Now, as I read those things about that king and that kingdom, does that make you long for that kingdom as well? We're supposed to have that same kind of anticipation. Jesus said this, pray it every day. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You watch the news, you see the mess that's out there immediately that should come from you. Oh, uh, Send your kingdom into this world so that your will can be done here as it is in heaven. We need to be a people longing for the king. But in Christmas time, the king had been promised and then the king had been provided. That's the good news of Christmas. That's what Paul's announcing in Romans chapter 1. This promised descendant of David, this promise God made to David, this covenant promise, is being fulfilled in this man, and his name is Jesus. This is why Matthew opened his gospel, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This is why Luke, in chapter 1, verse 31 and 32, records this, from the angel, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The king promised has arrived in the gospel. That's what the gospel is. Do you want to know what the message of the gospel is? That God's promised forever king has arrived in Jesus. As a matter of fact, it is revealed in the title that has been given to him of Christ. The very word itself means anointed one. It was the parallel of the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah. What would they do? What did they do with David when he needed to be placed as king? They anointed him, you see. So this one to come would be an anointed one. That term Christ or Messiah became synonymous to the Jewish people with the promised Davidic king. That is the gospel message. This king has come. This king has arrived. But then something unexpected happens. 
The promised king, when he had arrived, if you were to read past Matthew 1 and read through the rest of the chapters of Matthew's gospel, you will see that this king, who is clearly the king, did not assume the throne of David, his father, in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, after his public ministry of approximately three years, he was taken outside of Jerusalem. By one of the nations, he was to rule over the Romans and was hung on a cross. You know, we're so used to that story that we forget that that was very disappointing to the Jews. That was very disappointing to the followers of Christ in that time. And if you think about just the time between the crucifixion itself and the resurrection, which we all know happens, they didn't know. And they thought for sure He was the one. What other explanation could there be to His life and ministry, to His power, to His teaching and wisdom? Clearly, this is the fulfillment of the greatest of all kings to rule over all peoples. He even spoke of Himself as the Son of Man who would come again, sit on His glorious throne, judge all of the living and the dead. So what has happened? Well, see, what Jesus had to do in His death, what the King had to do, is He had to make the citizens of the kingdom ready for the kingdom itself. And by that, I mean that because His people were sinners, they were not fit for the kingdom. So what they didn't understand in the first arrival of the king is that he wasn't going to establish his earthly reign at that point. He was here first to prepare his people, and he did that through the cross. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, and we all should hear this now, everyone hear this phrase, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You need a righteousness that would have to exceed those of what they considered the most righteous people of their time. And if you don't have that righteousness, the kingdom's not for you. You're not going in. You're not suitable for it. Because remember what kind of kingdom this is? This is a kingdom of righteousness. So the people of the kingdom need to be righteous. Of course, we learn throughout our study in the first eight chapters of Romans is that's exactly what Jesus, through the cross, provides for His people, isn't it? He provides righteousness and justification, the, the, the two aspects of that. Through the cross, there's the forgiveness of sins, so it's as though you've never broken the laws of the kingdom. And then He gives you the righteousness of Christ Himself as though you had all the righteousness, which you do when you trust in Him, of Jesus the King Himself. But not only that, we need new hearts because we don't have kingdom hearts by nature. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, He said, Truly, truly, which is Jesus' way of saying, listen to what I'm about to tell you because this is truth, you need to hear it, so pay attention, unless 
one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You need to be born again. Born of God, born by the Spirit, born with a new heart. Your heart is not a kingdom heart. Well, it is a kingdom heart. It's just not the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. By nature, your heart is of the kingdom of the devil and of this world. And it's actually bent against the laws of the king. In order to enter the kingdom, this righteous kingdom, you need a new righteous heart. And only God can provide that. Not only that, Paul says in Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident, and he names many of them. And then he says in verse 21, uh, things like these, right? And then he gives a warning, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, which is interesting, because that means anyone who's claiming to be a Christian claiming to be saved, claiming to be on their way to the kingdom, and yet their lifestyle is nothing but these things, are they going into the kingdom? If they live as though Jesus is not king, and that's their whole life, Paul says, I'm warning you now. I need to warn you because there's a lot of bad teaching out there about this. That someone can just live as though Jesus isn't the king and expect in the end to be welcomed into his kingdom. It cannot be. And he goes on to explain that they need the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit who brings the kingdom heart and life, who sheds abroad the glory of the kingdom in their hearts and produces kingdom fruit, things like love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And then, friends, very quickly, the next point, after Jesus died, He didn't stay dead but rose again. And He's in the stage of what we would call the king promoted. This is what exactly Paul says in Romans 1 verse 4, that He was declared or demonstrated to be the Son of God empowered according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. That event of the resurrection and the exaltation of the Son of God empowered demonstrated Him to be who the Scripture says He is. And right now, He is reigning from heaven over all things and all peoples. Matter of fact, The author of the Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10, verse 12, 13. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He's quoting there Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the same thing as Paul saying. He's now demonstrated to be the Son of God in power. He is in that position, in that place, until the time is right, as we spoke about last week. Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That phrase, today I have begotten you, 
Peter preaches that phrase in Acts chapter 13, verses 32 to 34, and he says this, We bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. That is a resurrection passage. It's a prophetic passage about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, you see. This is the promised King who was crucified, but now through the resurrection promoted to the right hand of the Father, the position of all authority in heaven and on earth. And we are in the time, friends, of the proclamation of the King in His kingdom. This is the time we're in. We proclaim this gospel of God's Son descended from David, crucified for sins, risen again at the right hand of God. We're proclaiming Him. That's the good news. Verse 5 of Romans chapter 1, through Him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. Think about that phrase, obedience of faith. When you're proclaiming the risen Christ King and what He has done, you issue a command to the person you're proclaiming it to. You must, because this good news is true, repent and believe. You must put your faith in Him. It's obeying, you see, the gospel command of the King because right now in His position, He is offering forgiveness to the rebels in his kingdom. He's offering forgiveness and redemption and salvation and an inheritance in this eternal kingdom, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. That's irrelevant. The age of proclamation says, you believe in this Jesus the King and he will forgive and save you. And He will, when He appears, bring you safely into His eternal kingdom. That is the proclamation that we have. And we do that, friends, week upon week, month upon year, month upon month, year upon year, decade upon decade, century upon century, millennia upon millennia, until the King comes. At which point then the king will be present here on this earth. He will reign from the throne of his father David in the city of Jerusalem over Israel and all of the nations. Boy, you can read about that glorious time throughout the prophets. You can then fast forward and read about that appearing of this glorious King of kings and Lord of lords in Revelation chapter 19, the establishment of what we call the millennial kingdom because it lasts for a thousand years in which many of these prophecies will find their fulfillment in those thousand-year ideal time frame. And then finally, friends, it ends in Revelation chapter 22. I want to show you this. After the sun vanquishes all enemies and turns the kingdom over to the Father. 
And he says this about us. Verse 3 of chapter 22, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no lamp, light of lamp or sun, for the Lord the God will be their light. And listen to this. And they will reign forever and ever. Friends, that's the promise held out to everyone in this room. Are you prepared for the kingdom to come? You must repent of your sin and put your trust in King Jesus. If you do that, He will bring you into His everlasting kingdom. Let's end there. Let's pray.